Welcome back to the Assignment Bureau podcast. After a long hiatus, we're back with a different format for the time being, at least. That's interviews with people who use creative assignments in interesting ways in their lives or work. I'm Brett Oscarelli, and the Assignment Bureau is my independent podcast. In her early 20s, journalist Debbie Lockwood set off on her bike with a cardboard sign around her neck. On one side, it read, tell me a story about climate change. On the other, it read, tell me a story about water. Debbie's journey took her around the world, and her goal became to collect 1,001 stories about climate change, although that's not exactly how it started out. Today we'll hear about how her project evolved, and we'll also talk about the idea of climate change as an assignment for creative thinking about how to live and survive. Debbie's book, 1001 Voices on Climate Change, came out from Simon & Schuster this summer. Debbie, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. This book starts out with an account of your visit to the island nation of Tuvalu, and I was wondering if we could start with you reading a segment about your landing there. Oh, absolutely. Approaching Tuvalu is an exercise in trust. At the last possible moment, a strip of land appeared beneath us. The wheels rolled to a loud stop. We taxied past palm trees, a fence, many pens full of pigs, and concrete homes with tin roofs, gray-green rainwater collection tanks attached to each. I followed my roommate off the plane, squinting in the sunshine, toward a one-room open-air airport. The airport code, FUN. Three people on motorcycles idled, one foot balanced on the road, waiting for the plane to depart. A volleyball net billowed slightly in the wind. There is no fence between the runway and the country. Seen from the air, the strip is arguably the main geographic feature of Funafuti, a coral atoll and Tuvalu's capital, which sits 585 miles south of the equator. A little more than 10,000 people live in Tuvalu. Generations ago, Polynesians navigated here by the stars, calling the sprinkles of land in the vast blue of the South Pacific home. With 10 square miles of total area, less than five miles of roads, and only one hospital on the main island, Tuvalu is the fourth smallest country in the world. Disney World is four times larger in area. I thought it would be really nice to start with Tuvalu because you paint such a vivid picture of what's going on there. And how there's this island nation it's totally surrounded by water, and yet there is a lack of fresh water there. And how this freshwater lens underneath the islands has been compromised by salt water. And so a lot of the wells that people used to get their fresh water from have basically just become trash heaps because mm-hmm. they don't have the fresh water that people need anymore. What about desalination? A couple things about desalination, it's really only used in times of crisis um, because it's so expensive to run the machine itself in Tuvalu. And and of the people who I spoke with, they really don't love drinking the water from desal because it still tastes a little bit salty. Um, So I think it's it's just a limitation of what the machine is able to provide um, and and as a result, people are really at the whims of, of rain. Um, and when rain comes, it's something precious, right? <laughs> the, the youngest members of each household or the you know, most able to, to move in a quick way would 
jump up at the first sign of rain and make sure that the pipe connecting um, the roof to the rainwater tank was affixed in exactly the right way so that the maximum amount of water would go into the tank. And, And similarly, the day's activities would be limited by how much water there was available. Um, there was a handful of times in the month that I was there when I, I asked if I could wash my clothes and was flatly told that we just don't have enough water for it right now. And similarly, you know, when I'm staying in someone's home, I always try to help out whatever way I can. And I asked if I could help with washing the dishes and they were flatly just like, no, you can't, you can't help with that. You, <laughs> you don't know how to do it, preserving the right amount of water, right? As a Westerner. Exactly. Yeah. As, as a white person. <laughs> um, so it definitely made me feel more conscious of rainwater than I ever had been before. If we look at adapting to climate change as a set of assignments, what were some of the most creative responses you witnessed in your travels? Yeah. Well, I'm going to um, jump around to another country in the Pacific, if that's all right. Um, the, the first thing that came to mind is a project started by Tania Tangaroa, who's a Maori woman living in Wanganui, New Zealand. And um, she has worked on wetland restoration for the last 20 years, restoring a piece of wetland that used to be, was used for, for multiple decades as a landfill. And her climate adaptation measure has been to kind of really deliberately focus on making that landfill as habitable to both people and the the non-human but very much alive animal and plant population of the area as well and and I was really moved by being able to spend some time with her in that wetland and and just listening to her story what did that feel like um it's it's near where the Wanganui River meets the Tasman Sea so the land feels kind of porous and soft and Tanea was wearing gum boots but I had just the shoes I had on so kind of my feet sunk into the earth and as we entered the land she was really deliberate about um, singing a welcome and and um, as we walked through the gate together she translated a little bit of what she had just sung and it was an acknowledgement of all the things that we don't see or the things that we should see that we don't um, when it comes to the interplay between the natural world and the human world, I guess. And she told me that every bird and creature has the same language and that when she observes and watches them, that they start to tell her things. So modern landfills are mostly lined, but this area is called the Balgoni tip and it has no lining at the bottom. Um, So layers of waste were compacted into a dump, which was built right after the Second World War. And even though it ceased to be a landfill in 2000, was capped with clay and topsoil in the early 2000s, um, there's still kind of some contaminants that can impact the water, birds, and plants that make that place their home. So she took an area that a lot of people thought of as just one big toxic soup. And of course, it's not healthy or possible to eat anything from that land right now. And although the the ripo, the wetland, isn't thriving as it once was, she's set traps for invasive species like rats and stoats and ferrets that are introduced to Aotearoa, New Zealand, and that are really harmful for the population of native birds because they'll eat the eggs. Um, But the signs of life, um, things like owls and hawks and kingfishers and cormorants that have started to return as the wetland is recovered are, I think, what, what keeps her going. That and also kind of the being able to educate the younger members of her community about different types of plants. So it's 
<laughs> paying close attention to the land, but trying to create a, a sanctuary out of something that was formerly considered waste. Looking at uh, so many different places on the globe, were you seeing a lot of examples of creativity with regards to people's responses to climate change and adapting to it? Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, one other creative response to go to a completely different geography is called Farmacia Viva Indígena, which is in um, Paoyan, Peru, which is part of the Amazon near the biggest city nearby is called Pucallpa. And there's a, a group of indigenous Shipibo, Conibo people who have gotten together to create five hectares, which is about five football fields in the rainforest that they're designating as a, a living library of indigenous plants, many of which are medicinally useful. So kind of similar to Tanea's work in an interesting way, they're prioritizing educating the next generation, but also there's the chance that it, it might not be passed on if it's not you know, thought of and cataloged deliberately. You also talked about with Tuvalu, you had met with somebody from this organization, the National Adaptation Program of Action. He told you about some interesting projects as well. So yeah, the, the, the person you're referencing is Sociala Tinilao, and there's a whole bunch of projects that NAPA, or the National Adaptation Program of Action, has put together. One is planting trees along the coast where the roots can help limit soil erosion. Um, another specifically targeted one of the islands in Tuvalu that's been experiencing seawater intrusion. And Napa helped them create an above ground structure filled with compost and soil where the islanders could plant their root crops because, of course, climate change impacts food security as well. And another island partnered with Napa to receive help refurbishing their inlet for fishing. And also coastal walls for protection are, are being considered for, for protecting this low-lying island from the tides. Traveling to report for this book, what did you learn about automatic assignments that our bodies give us for survival and how climate change might affect our ability to carry out those assignments? Yeah, it's, it's such a great question, and I'm really glad you asked it. Um, I think in terms of survival, it's it's kind of basic in a sense, right? Like we need, as humans, we need shelter. <laughs> um, we need air and water and food and safety and community. But climate change can impact all six of those things. And in Tuvalu as well, you know, speaking of community, there's, if we're talking about adaptation, like one of the, the main ways I guess that Tuvaluans are adapting to climate change in addition to, you know, carefully allocating water is that many people in the younger generation are making the decision to leave and to use what's called the Pacific Access Category visa. So Tuvalu has a special relationship set up with the government of New Zealand and I think also Fiji as well, whereby it's relatively easy for people to migrate and you kind of enter a lottery. And there's a, a number of things you have to do, but each year Tuvaluans will, will move. I think it's slowed down because of the pandemic, but there's several thousand people of this island nation that's not that big to start out with who are living in Fiji and in New Zealand, mostly around Auckland. And uh, it brings up bigger questions. It's like, what does it mean for a community to continue to to thrive and survive, but not in the original place in which that community started, right? 
And I think that there's a conversation that's different among younger generations and the older generations um, of people I spoke with who were older. They mostly see climate change as an act of God. There's a really strong Seventh-day Adventist community in Tuvalu because of missionary activity. And additionally, there's a tradition of burying your loved ones in the front yard, right? Because there's not a lot of space. It's kind of just the sandy patch, but people don't want to leave the bones of their ancestors behind. Um, so it's a really tough decision to to make the choice to leave, but something that some people are doing, looking forward and seeing the projections about whether or not a place like Tuvalu might be habitable in, in the future, and, and especially as water scarcity continues to be a concern. You talk about some of the questions that have been raised while you've been doing your research and while you've been writing your book and traveling. Can you reflect on the importance of picking the right questions as perhaps assignments that will help you discover what you're looking for? The the biggest question that I started out with was I wanted to know, well, I guess to, to, yeah, to zoom back a little bit, climate change is something that's really abstract. Um, And it's often discussed in numerical terms, in terms of millimeters of sea level rise or degrees of temperature change. And as a student of folklore and mythology, I know that stories can be sticky um, and that storytelling can be the way that we kind of define ourselves in, in real time. And I wanted to know how climate change was impacting people's sense of home and sense of self, um, how climate change and water are interconnected because many, not all, but many climate change impacts are experienced through water, whether that's overabundance and a flood or drought with scarcity. But water is something that's a little bit easier to talk about than climate is because everyone has a water story, whether that's, you know, learning how to swim or experiencing a flood when one was five years old and that's left an indelible impact um, for the rest of the rest of a person's life. So I think that for me the 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 questions all came out of, you know, wanting to find a way to humanize this issue and to make it slightly more accessible and, and centered in a different kind of, you know, not only science communication but also people communication. Continuing from that line of thought, you talk about a lot of different things that you were thinking about as you embarked on this project uh, in your introduction to the book. There was that that you wanted to make climate change more tangible for readers, but also you met a man named Zorp in, I think it was New Orleans, who said that you should just get your work out there. And you joked about collecting 1,001 stories just like Scheherazade from 1,001 Arabian Nights. And your friend says that you can do it. Your ex suggests going to Tuvalu. Can you reflect on how those came together to concretize the project and the way that you decided to carry it out? Sure. Yeah. I mean, like anything, there's many different beginnings to the story. So sometimes when I'm looking back, it's hard to pick out just one thread. The event that I started the introduction with was kind of in many ways like a a catalyst for bringing so many of those strands of thoughts together. And that was the Boston Marathon bombing that happened in 2013. And I was a college student at the time. 
and had gone to watch the race and came back before the events of that day happened. Um, but then we were in lockdown for several days and it was just this really tense, fearful time, right? And once that lockdown lifted, the first thing that I wanted to do was go and have face-to-face conversations with strangers and just remind myself that not all people are murderous. And so I was living in a cooperative house of undergrads at the time, and we ordered our food in bulk. So we had this massive recycling pile of like boxes that the vegetables would come in. So I went under the sink and scrounged up a broccoli box, cut it open, and then took out a Sharpie and wrote down open call for stories on my cardboard sign and and put a piece of ribbon around it. And what I wanted to do was just talk to people. And so I went out the door and did exactly that and sort of wandered without knowing where the day was going to take me and spoke with all sorts of people that day. I also had a bunch of balloons with me because I thought I needed to draw more attention to myself visually. And I later ditched the balloons because they were kind of cumbersome to carry around at the same time as an audio recorder. But I was also uh, taking a class at that time with a professor named Helen Mira called How to Do Words with Things. So it was loosely a sculpture and creative writing class at the same time. So we would have all these quirky assignments to do things like go into the Widener Library and spell out your first and last name and call numbers of books and then photocopy all the spines together and then come back into class and make a sculpture out of wood in response to yours or someone else's, like the names of the titles on the book spines. So it was very like loose and free form. We would have these big like three or four hour long studio blocks of just like creating or writing things. And so the the idea of putting words on a thing was connected <laughs> to that class and that assignment. And I think this was like my homework for that week was just I decided I was going to do this and that was fine. So having a space where I could play and be creative like that definitely helped. And and yeah, it was just it was so incredible. It felt like moving through the world in a different way. I felt like suddenly I was doing something that felt really right, (laughs) you know? Debbie tells me that her cardboard sign became something of an invitation for people to talk to her, people with whom she probably never would have spoken to otherwise. She liked putting their stories in dialogue with each other. And she took the sign with her on a bike trip that summer down the Mississippi River. She rhapsodizes about traveling by bike. The thing I really love about being on a bicycle is that it gets you to the places in between places. Um, I think most of the time when people travel, they'll end up in a city. Um, and cities are great, but other places are great too. <laughs> Along the way, people people talk to me, all sorts of people. The farther down the river I got, the more stories I was hearing about water and climate change and specifically saltwater encroachment on the land or people making the decision to leave a community that, that they'd called home for generations, similarly to, to Tuvaluans, in fact, after intensified storms or, or dealing with the unpredictability of that. I just couldn't stop thinking about those stories, right? And I use those for kind of fodder for my senior thesis in folklore mythology. And I wrote poems inspired by the stories people told me, but that didn't feel quite right either. <laughs> and in as much as... Um, kind of wanted to leave people's words the, the way that they were. And, and so in an oblique way, this all led me to journalism eventually. And I also refined my set of questions a little bit more as well, because that sign, open call for stories, was a little bit vague. <laughs> Even when I was on the Mississippi River bike trip, people would ask me if I was selling telephones. Why did they think you were selling telephones? Because oh, it open call, I think the word call 
links to telephones first and foremost, which was not what I was trying to do at all, but I realized I needed to make the wording a little bit more specific. So the water stories and the climate change stories seemed the most salient to me. It's one of the defining issues of my generation. So I I refined, <laughs> got a new piece of cardboard and wrote on that sign, tell me a story about water on one side and tell me a story about climate change on the other. I will say the conversation about climate change has changed in the years that I've been doing this project. I think in part from the work of youth activists like Greta Thunberg and others um, who are really just demanding that the conversation become more mainstream and widespread and a part of the everyday. Um, People were really hesitant to talk with me about climate change initially when I started, unless I was at a, a climate march or speaking with a climate scientist. But I think that people are much more aware now than they were in 2013, 2014. So if the main assignment was to concretize climate change through stories that made it tangible for people, would you say that that was kind of the main assignment that you gave yourself? Yeah, I mean, I think I thought perhaps less about how people would hear it and more about the method of the listening that felt the most important to me. Originally, I wanted to make, and I'm still in the process of doing this, um, an audio map where people can click on a point and listen to a story from that place and kind of contribute their own story as well. But the writing and the, the, the bigger question of how to humanize the issue, I think I kind of came into that in the process of doing it. It took me a while to be able to articulate what I was doing and why. Um, but I will say the great thing about traveling alone is that I was constantly meeting people, constantly introducing myself, and constantly refining the why. You know, I had a direction. I, I started with a, a grant for a year of purposeful wandering after graduation, which is was an incredible gift and allowed me to get started. But the purpose was, was baked in there. And, you know, it's interesting. Maybe I should go back and read that grant application because I think that the way... I know that the way I've thought about the question has changed, but I haven't gone back and and read that since I wrote it. So it it would be a really interesting thing to see how it's changed over time really precisely in terms of the language I use. How essential were the assignments that you used to help design the project? Um, You know, I, I think that the number 1,001, like making 1,001 audio recordings of stories from people I met about water and climate change seemed so improbable or having 1,001 conversations. I just thought it was like a ridiculously large number, which I think is part of the reason why I was drawn to it, but it was sort of a joke, right? And the form and structure of the assignment itself in terms of a deadline also changed as I got into the process of doing it. At first, I thought it was just going to be a year And I knew that I wanted to go to Tuvalu, Fiji, and New Zealand. And that after I had been riding my bicycle in New Zealand, my plan was to fly to the UK in part because I had grown up watching Steve Irwin and thought that everything in Australia was going to kill me. So I didn't want to go there. And I was too shy and hesitant to try recording stories in languages that I don't speak. Um, And I've got Spanish and English and like a bit of modern standard Arabic, but that seemed like it left out a bunch of the world. What happened was once I got a month or so into the New Zealand bicycling experience, I felt 
really deeply this desire to slow down. I realized that I wanted nothing more than to keep going. And, and when else in my life would I be able to travel in such a free-form way? I had the financial backing of this grant from Harvard. Bike touring is really, really cheap. So the main expense is just getting somewhere. And then after that, I mean, people kept me alive um, many times over by taking me in as a guest. I remain incredibly grateful for that. And hopeful it's something I can pay forward down the line. But it's really just like food and water and shelter, right? It really strips it down to the bare minimum. But yeah, I made the decision to slow down. I gave myself another creative assignment, which was to try not to fly for as long as I could. Debbie says that this only lasted about a year because when she decided not to fly, she was in New Zealand surrounded by a lot of ocean. She crowdfunded a ride on a cargo ship to get to Australia, where she rode her bike up the East Coast for a few months, recording more stories. Eventually, she started to hitch a ride on a sailboat to Southeast Asia, but that didn't work out and the crew left her on an island, she says, so she had to get on another sailboat and she wound up back in New Zealand. This flow that I thought I was in turned into a gigantic zigzag and then after about a year of trying not to fly, I decided to buy a cheap flight to Bangkok just to get to the next place and cycled in Southeast Asia for a couple months before coming back home for a bit of a midpoint and then continued without the bike for another handful of years. The motivating assignment itself was to continue to listen and to try to get to this mythical number of 1,001. But more importantly, just to put stories from different parts of the world in dialogue with one another and to make an effort to listen to and amplify voices of people who might not already be a part of the conversation about climate change as, as it is. Would it be accurate to say then that a creative assignment was essential for making this book? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the structure came out of giving myself that <laughs> that assignment, right? I, it's inter- like it's interesting the language of it. I don't I don't often think about it in that way, but I think that it very much was an assignment I gave to myself, and it, it came out of these multiple things I was swimming in and thinking about at the time. Do you have any tips for others who might want to give themselves an assignment for creative purposes? Yeah, I would say let the project evolve and change over time. There's kind of this flow point or a, a balancing coasting kind of feeling where you have just the right amount of structure. For me, it was a number and a time frame. But once that backbone of discipline is in place, I would say be prepared to let the journey take a, its own shape and form and really listen to yourself in terms of what it is that you want to get out of it. There's that beautiful book by Miranda July, It Chooses You. And in a lot of ways, I feel like this journey chose me <laughs> more than anything else. But but as long as you keep showing up for the project and keep putting the work into doing it and overcoming that initial phase of discomfort, because it's always uncomfortable to start something new, then there comes this flow state where it's a point of kind of relaxation and spontaneity and play. And finally, would you care to give a creative assignment to listeners who are interested in receiving one? Sure. I would love for people to set aside time to have a one-on-one story kind of conversation, listening moment about water or climate change with someone around them, or it could be their own story. But I think the main important things to think about are removing distractions, 
you know, leaning forward, nodding as someone speaking, but not interrupting. I was so bad at this when I started. I was always like thinking ahead to the next thing that I wanted to ask. You know, I wasn't really listening. I was, I was talking, right? <laughs> Even when I was asking someone from their story. And it, it took a moment, you know, many moments, <laughs> several months really, of learning how to slow down and just fall forward into the rhythm of someone else's voice and, and pay really full, deep attention to what it is that they're saying. With consent, if people want to make an audio recording of those stories, that would be super interesting and I'd love to hear it. You can send it to be a part of this audio archive in progress. But, you know, in general, just just making more time and space for face-to-face storytelling. I think that it's something that perhaps we don't do as much as, as maybe we can or should. Debbie Lockwood, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Devi Lockwood's book, 1001 Voices on Climate Change, comes out this summer. If you want to listen to or contribute to her audio map of stories about climate change or water, you can find that at 1001stories.org. 1001stories.org. I'm Brett Oscarelli, and thanks for listening to this independent podcast, The Assignment Bureau.